0: Hey fellas, hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a good week so far. It is always a pleasure uh, to study God's Word with you. And for this lesson <laughs> this week, we have a lot of God's Word to study together. I invite you to turn your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 17. We'll be looking at verse 17 and chapter 5 and taking it all the way through chapter 6, verse 18. So go ahead and turn there. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. If you missed last week, Uh, Pastor George, he began the first of five major uh, discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, this one being the authoritative message of of kingdom life for his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Now, up until this point, we've seen that uh, Matthew has been revealing Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, He is the promised uh, new king, and that was demonstratively demonstrated in Jesus's own baptism. Now, following his baptism in verse 12 of chapter 4, we see that Jesus is not only the new king, but he is creating for himself a new people. He he begins calling his disciples, uh, calling them to deny themselves, to follow him as the one true king, and that he is going to bring them into to his kingdom, which he's also inaugurating through signs and wonders, um, but he's going to invite them into his kingdom so that they might be fishers of men. So up into this point, we, we have a new king, we have an, a new people, and a new kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is showing us that there's also a new way of, of living as his people under his rule. So in chapters 5 through 7, you have 111 verses, this Sermon on the Mount, which John Stott, I love how he describes it. He says it's the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it's his own description of what he wants his followers to be and to do. Uh, to put it differently, Jesus is showing us what it is to be a citizen of heaven. And friends, it it is completely countercultural to everything we might think. It is a new pot of gumbo, what Jesus is introducing here. So let us uh, read God's word together, starting at chapter 5, verse 17. God's word says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, and that your whole body go into hell. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let whatever you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." Verse 40, 43 You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must be not uh, be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. Deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 16 And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so grateful for this uh, time where we can come together as brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ to study your word. Father, there's so much before us uh, this day. We pray that you would um, guide us, that you would Help us to bring out in your um, word that which is necessary for us. Um, we pray that uh, you would bless our Bible study, our discipleship with one another, that we might massage your truth down into our hearts, that we simply wouldn't be informed but truly transformed by your spirit. Help us, O oh God, for your servants to listen. It's in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, one of my uh, favorite football memories of all time was the Iron Bowl kick six and uh, 2013. <laughs> I'm sure you guys remember that, um, I certainly do, especially as a suffering Ole Miss fan, I, I, I love this memory. And if you don't uh, remember, um, it, Iron Bowl. Um, and uh, Alabama w- was in the lead and, and everything was, was going as you might expect until the, the last play of the game. Um, everyone before the last play of the game uh, knew what was going to happen. Bama was going to win. Little Nicky was going to get his third consecutive championship, and, uh, um, and, you know, they're just going to win. That's the Bama narrative, right? Everything was going according to plan until the last play of regulation when Bama missed a, uh, a very ill-advised um, last-second field goal. Um, that they missed it, and it was caught by Auburn's Chris Davis, and he took that puppy and ran it back 100 yards for the winning touchdown. Um, that moment. 11 SEC teams cheered and all of their fandom. Bama nation, <laughs> they melted. I'm pretty sure Brian Lewis and Dick Kane and all the other Bama fans still have night terrors just thinking about that moment. But one of my favorite um, um, moments of that, of that whole experience, um, especially as a suffering Ole Miss fan, by the way, was looking at the faces of all the Bama fans in the stadium. I mean, they still have memes on the internet about all of those just slack-jawed faces. I mean, their mouths were just hanging agape. They were so shocked and confused. They were thinking to themselves, what in the world just happened? Uh, It was the face of those who who trusted a narrative and that narrative proved to be false. Now, why do I bring that up? Other than just to make fun of Alabama fans. Um, Well, in our world, there are so many different narratives and promises um, that say if you wanna have a blessed life, if you wanna be blessed, if you wanna win, then you have to be a certain way, do certain things, achieve certain things. And, and, and if you do that, um, you will be blessed. So for example, the the American dream, that if you give your, your soul to the American dream, you know, if, if you do everything the American dream is, if you find the perfect spouse, if you have the right number of kids who are all in the soccer league, and you have a great house a great 401k you retire between ages 60 and 65 if you accomplish those things well well, that is what it means to be blessed or you have the the narrative of, of individualism that if you just be you if you if you become the best version of you and you get yours no matter um no matter the cost if you if you just achieve all that that you're meant to achieve right if you do that and that's what it means to be blessed. Ricky, Bobby, you ain't first, you're last. Do everything you can to be first. This is just the way the world works. If you do these things, you and yours will be blessed. And so many people trust that. But then we get to Revelation, the end of the Bible in chapter 18, when the new age dawns, the apostle John tells us that all of those narratives and all of those false saviors and false promises will be proven to be false. They will fail. And then he says, every single person who trusts in those things, um, well, they're gonna be just like those Bama fans. He tells us they will be weeping and they'll be mourning. Their, Their mouths will be agape. And they'll be thinking to themselves, what in the world happened? I thought that this is what life was all about. I thought this is what it meant to be blessed. I thought if we, if we did these things and, and, and gave our life to these things, everything would be okay. The Apostle John in Revelation 18 essentially gives us the end time, kick six version of all of those who put their hope in their faith and narratives that proved to be false. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sparing us from all of that. He has said that, that a new day has dawned, and he has come to show us what it means to be truly human and to live as a human being. He has essentially come to show us what it means to be citizens of, of heaven, and it's completely countercultural to everything this world says is right. In the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing us what it means to be truly blessed and to live a life of blessing. That, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last week, George, he opened up with the Beatitudes. And as George said, those Beatitudes in those first 11 verses, th- that wasn't a checklist, something that you and I must do in order to be blessed, but rather those are the characteristics of those whom are already blessed in Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage, starting in verse 17 all the way through 618, um, Jesus is showing us um, w- uh, how to live this blessed life as those who are blessed. What this blessed life looks like in, in day-to-day interactions with, with people, what it looks like in our heart, and it's essentially he's showing us what our relationship to the law of God is. What place does the law of God have in our hearts is what he is showing us in, in our passage. Now, Now, if last week, if those Beatitudes were countercultural to everything that the world says about being blessed— Uh, This week is completely countercultural to everything that the religious world says is right as we look uh, to the Christian's relationship uh, to the law of God. Now, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount, it merits a verse-by-verse consideration, which, of course, we're we're looking at such a large section, we can't possibly do that. So what I would like to do is focus mainly on verses uh, 17 through 20 of chapter 5, and then for the rest of it have a a 30,000 foot approach to get to the heart of what Jesus is teaching, okay? So for our first point, I want us to see that practical righteousness is essential for our uh, Christian discipleship. We see this in chapter five, verses 17 through 20. Practical righteousness is essential for our discipleship. Now in this tiny little section, I I want us to understand that it's of major importance for at least three reasons. One, it defines for us what practical righteousness is. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, Secondly, it shows us the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's lots of confusion about this in various denominations, but but it shows us the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most importantly, for our purposes, anyway. This little section serves as an interpretive key for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So you and I, we're going to interpret the rest of the Sermon out wrongly if we don't understand verses 17 through 20. Now in 17 through 20, it actually splits up into two subsections. First, we see Christ and the law, his relationship to the law. Then secondly, in verses 19 through 20, we're going to see the Christian's relationship to the law. So first and foremost, Christ and the law. You'll see right there in verse 17 that Jesus begins this section with a very forceful (laughs) exhortation. He says, do not think, all right, that's big. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Uh, Jesus knew that there would be people who would think that that's exactly what he had come here to do. And as we look through the rest of Matthew, we see that that proves to be true. The religious circles in their own self-righteousness looked at Jesus and and that's what they thought when they saw him ministering on the Sabbath. For example, they thought to themselves, ah, Jesus doesn't care about the law, he doesn't love God, he doesn't care about our traditions, there's something wrong with this Jesus. He doesn't care about the law. Now, of course, that's not true, but what's really interesting is that uh, Christians today, particularly Protestants and Reformed circles, sometimes reach the same conclusion they take a different road to get there, but they uh, they reach this same conclusion. So, for example, there's so many Protestants in the Reformed circles, and I'm sure all of us have struggled with this at one time or another, who have thought to themselves, okay, well, I'm a Christian. I am saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And amen to that, brothers. But, but in our hearts, we think to ourselves, okay, well, that means then that, that obedience isn't that big of a deal. The law no, no longer applies to me. Right? Because I'm resting on Christ's finished work, therefore I'm free from the obligation of the law. Well, however we get there, whether if we go the pharisaical route or some of this, this poison that's in the Protestant circles today, however we get there, Jesus gives, gives a, a, a death blow to that argument. And this is what he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but rather I have come to fulfill it, Jesus says. Now how does Jesus fulfill the law? What does that mean? We might remember that there's three categories, broad categories of law in the Old Testament. There's the ceremonial law, there's judicial law, and then there's the moral law. How does Jesus fulfill the ceremonial law? Well, Hebrews tells us, particularly Hebrews 10. The ceremonial law, uh, primarily the sacrificial system, all of that um, were pointers to Jesus. Jesus is the 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 once and for all, the final sacrifice. So so Jesus fulfills all of the ceremonial law because it was pointing to him anyway. And so he's here and he, he's fulfilled that. And he's the ultimate sacrifice. And, and by placing our faith in him, right, this this is that part is nullified because Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. What about the judicial law? Well, the judicial law pretty much expired. Um, with the state, it was a geopolitical laws for the state of, of Israel. Now the heart behind those laws were, were, uh, you know, how they were to interact and and engage their neighbors and and neighboring nations. But, but nevertheless, those judicial laws, some of those funky judicial laws, like you have to have a banister on your roof. So nobody would fall off. Those laws don't apply anymore. Right. Thirdly, the moral law, how does Jesus fulfill the moral law? Well, he fulfilled the moral law by desiring, obeying, and and living it out perfectly. Moral law is essentially the the manifestation of God's character and heart. The Ten Commandments, for example, was a summary of that moral law. Jesus uh, resummarizes those Ten Commandments with the two greatest commandments. But but those but those commandments they they're the manifestation of God's character and His heart, and Jesus fulfills that perfectly by obeying it perfectly. However, it is this moral law that Jesus says in verse 18 that still has abiding validity. He said, this, this, is, this is still here, folks. Don't take one iota away from the moral law. It has abiding validity, which means that it still binds people, including justified persons, as Christians. So Jesus, in his relationship to the law, he he fulfills it. But now he says, even Christians must conform to it. So what does he say? He says in verse uh, 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these laws and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 20, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes. Talk about a forceful exhortation. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying there, right? Because it sounds like he is teaching works righteousness. I assure you that is not at all what Jesus is teaching. At this point, it's important that we understand the distinctions between legal righteousness and practical righteousness. What is legal righteousness? Legal righteousness is our justification. That's what that is. We, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're justified by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, in his person, and in his finished work. And as we do, his righteousness is imputed onto our account. That's 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 our justification. That that's legal righteousness. That that is why that we're able to go into the to the throne room of, of God's justice with confidence because we have an advocate there who says, this man and this person is innocent because we're united to him by faith. And this is why that we can have confidence brothers even in this life when we struggle and fall to sin because we know that we are accepted by God not because of what we have done but rather because of what Christ has done. Our faith is in him and because we're united to him in faith when God looks at us he doesn't see our sinful record he sees Christ in his record. That is our legal righteousness and that is the great news of the gospel. But that's not the type of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about practical righteousness. And practical righteousness essentially addresses the life of a believer after they are saved, after their justification. We know from the Bible that we are saved by faith alone, but the Bible also says, doesn't it, that a saving faith is never alone. It always manifests itself in a life of obedience, not perfect obedience, but repentant obedience, in a life lived after him that's that's practical righteousness now it's really interesting in, in Romans Paul anticipates <laughs> the the childish arguments that even Christians can sometimes make after he talks about justification by faith in Romans 6 he addresses um, a temptation that he knows is going to arise in the hearts of, of even us brothers and amen. Paul if, does it mean then if, if I am if I'm justified by faith, Saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And and that's it. Doesn't that mean then that, well, I can do whatever I want? It's kind of like a get out of jail free card, isn't it, Paul? That I can live the way that I want to live as long as I have faith in Christ. And Paul says, no! (laughs) He goes, what, are you crazy? Of course you don't. Don't continue on in sinning. Why? And this is my summary. Because when we are in Christ, when we're justified by faith, not only do we have a new record a legal righteousness, but, brothers, we also receive a new heart. And, and this heart has, has new desires. The Old Testament prophets said this heart that we'd receive in the new covenant has, has God's law written on it. And therefore, as those with this, this new heart and dwelt also by the, by the Holy Spirit... Um, the Holy Spirit is cultivating new desires in our life. We begin desiring God's law. We don't fear God's law because we know that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we begin to desire God's law. It is, it is honey to our lips, right? Because it's the manifestation of who God is. It's his character and it's his will and, and, and it's an expression of his love. So we so we desire it and we also know that that in it, is freedom and life and blessing. We desire it, but also we're enabled to live it out. Not perfectly, mind you, of course not in this life, but repentively so. And, and isn't it true that the overarching of our desire of our heart is to live it out because we want to live a life pleasing to the one whom has saved us in Christ Jesus? Uh, So with this law upon our hearts, this new heart with the law imprinted on it, empowered by the Holy Spirit, all of this leads to a new lifestyle, which we're calling practical righteousness. We are united together in Jesus Christ. We have a new heart. We have new desires. We desire him. We desire his word. We want to abide in his word. And the overarching desire of our heart is to imitate Jesus Christ, isn't it? Of course, we want to imitate the author and perfecter of our faith. And and therefore, Jesus says that this practical righteousness, this life lived with him after conversion, is essential for discipleship. So going back to to verse 20, what does Jesus say? He says that our righteousness must be greater than than that of the Pharisees. Now that that sounds scary. <laughs> it sounds so overburdening, right? I mean, it just sounds impossible because we know that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were scrupulous with all the, you know, the 613 some odd commands of the Old Testament. They invented other commands. Apparently the 613 commands weren't enough. They made more. How in the world are we gonna be more righteous than they. Well, I think a great way to understand what Jesus is is saying here, and also a great way for us to see how the righteousness of the Pharisees wasn't really righteousness in the first place, is by going to Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. This is what Jesus says. He says, woe to you, religious people. You are like whitewashed tombs. They didn't have graves underground. They, they had tombs. And, and the richer and more well-to-do you are, you had beautiful tombs. They were whitewashed and they were, they were decorated with, with ornate decorations. And, and he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous, but in the inside, there's lawlessness. See, Jesus is saying that their righteousness was, was simply a facade they were like a Christmas tree. It was decorated beautifully, all the ornaments and lights, but at the end of the day, it's a dead tree. That's what Jesus was saying. He, he was, Jesus was not demanding more righteous deeds done by human effort. What he's demanding is a righteous heart produced by divine grace. And, and that's the difference. And that's why it's impossible to enter into to God's kingdom without a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees, because that kind of righteousness is only possible through new birth. And no one enters, according to John John 3, the kingdom of heaven, salvation without new birth. So brothers, this is according to chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. This is how we interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As Christians who are secured in the blood of Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, who have been given a new heart with the law written on it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know that there's now a new way of living. And with respect to the law, it means that we hunger after his righteousness. We hunger after his word. We desire his law because we know that we are already saved in Christ. We're, we're not fearful of condemnation. We're desiring God's law because it reveals his heart, is his will. And as God's children, we desire his heart. And furthermore, we know because God's law is his design for humanity, it's by, it's by abiding in his law, right, that leads to a life of freedom and a life of blessing and a life of joy. And so not perfectly, but repentantly, we endeavor by the grace of the Holy Spirit to follow him by abiding in his law. Uh, that is essentially how we interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it means. Now, from verses uh, 21 through the end of chapter 5, verse 48, and then into Matthew 16, Jesus gives us a whole bunch of practical everyday examples of this deeper and greater righteousness that is only possible um, with those who have new hearts. Okay, so let us look at this ever so briefly uh, for a second point, the evidences of true righteousness. This is in verse 21 through 48. Now in these um, verses in the remainder of chapter five, Jesus gives us six examples showing us the difference between true righteousness of a disciple and the fake righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, you'll see at the beginning of each of these sections in verse 21, verse 27, uh, verse 31, 33, 38, and 43, he introduces each of these arguments and differences with an antithetical statement. He says, you have heard it said before, blank, but I say unto you, blank. Now, what we have to understand when Jesus says that, he, he is not arguing against God's law. Or even Moses, he's arguing against the perverted interpretation that the Pharisees had on God's law. And to boil it all down, Jesus is saying, listen, I, I'm an incarnate word here and you guys are wrong. This is what this means. Uh, Jesus looking at their interpretation then tells us why their interpretation is lousy and why they had a fake righteousness in these remaining verses. So for, so for example, when we think about uh, the Pharisees, or when we hear that word legalism, usually we think it means that you're being nitpicky with, with God's law, that you're making it more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, legalism is actually the opposite of that. Legalism is taking God's word and all of its grandeur and beauty and bringing it down into the mud with us. It, it's It's watering it down to such a degree that God's law is actually obtainable and doable. So with commands, for example, this is what the Pharisees did. They they restricted the interpretation of God's commands to the mere letter of the law. Uh, They dismissed the the intention behind the law or the heart of the law. They they just focused on on these, these very narrow examples of what the heart of the law was, the letter of the law. Furthermore, they completely dismissed the positive action that these laws had. There's always a pot of positive action, even behind laws of negation, but they, but they restricted the, the interpretation of the law. Then when it comes to permissions, there's permissions in God's word, for example, divorce and oath taking, they expanded those permissions from what they were supposed to be so they could justify their, their sinful actions. So essentially, this is what they were doing. They got a 10-foot basketball goal. They lowered it to six feet, dunked on it, and were walking around town like they were Michael Jordan. And Jesus says, guys, you have missed the whole point. God's law is not merely about what you do and what you don't do. It involves, in fact, it must involve the intentions and the motivations of your heart. Brothers, as true disciples of Jesus Christ, we must embrace the, the heart of God's law, because that's what Jesus is after in the first place, our, our hearts. And so this is what we first see. We see that true righteousness begins in the heart in verses 21 through 27. Jesus takes two commandments from the from the of the Ten Commandments, um, Commandment 6 and Commandment 7. And he's showing us that true righteousness isn't really about what we do. It includes that, but but it's always about what's going on inside our hearts. So with verses 21 through 26, the sixth commandment, he says, thou shall not kill. Now, we got to understand that the disciples, they were ingenious in the ways that they came up to, to get around the intentions of what God was really saying in his law. So for the sixth commandment, by narrowing the application to simply not murdering someone, that was the bar, right? Um, but by, by, by narrowing the application to, to simply that, they were able to harbor hatred and bitterness in their hearts all the while counting themselves righteous. And Jesus is essentially saying, hey, listen, I'm glad you're not killing anybody. But if, if that's your standard, you've, you've missed it because, because murdering someone, it begins in the heart with anger. Now, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, right? But we know as sinful people, even when we have righteous indignation, it's always mixed with unrighteous anger and brothers on the day to come we're going to be surprised by how many corpses we have accumulated over the years by the murdering in our hearts we understand that but the pharisees didn't They thought to themselves, okay, I haven't killed someone, so so I'm righteous. And the result of that is, is that not only did they break the heart of God's law and therefore stood condemned, but but their theology and the way they lived blinded them to the fact that they were in desperate need of Christ. And that is the danger of legalism, because it blinds us to what our desperate need is. Jesus, we have to embrace the heart of the law because, brothers, it drives us to Christ. It shows us our desperate need for him. But not only that, because once it drives us to Jesus and we embrace Jesus by faith and we're in Jesus, this is what he does. He works his righteousness down into our hearts. And as those resting in him with a new heart, with his law written on our hearts, we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to put to death those noxious, poisonous weeds that, that, that begin to grow there like anger. But not only that, we also pursue the positive. We, we pursue reconciliation. Uh, if, if Certainly if we're the culprit, but even if the other person is, even if the other person has something against us that we're not really responsible for, he tells us that those who are truly righteous, true disciples, pursue reconciliation because that's what this commandment is all about. It begins in the heart. Now he shows us as well in, in um, the seventh commandment with adultery. And again, the ph- Pharisees were doing the same thing with the, the commandment, "Do not commit adultery." They were narrowing the definition of adultery and they were broadening the scope of purity. So they were saying to themselves, "Okay, I've lusted over my neighbor's wife. I've lusted uh, over that girl down the street, but I haven't had sex with them. So I'm good. I'm still I'm still holy." But Jesus says again, you've missed it. Because if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Now, there's so many things that we could say here we don't have time for. We could talk about um, the Imago Dei and our neighbor. We could talk about the the dangers and the horror of of pornography. We could talk about God's beautiful design for sex within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, which serves as a sermon illustration to the greater marriage of Christ and his church and the spiritual union that we have for him. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians five. We could talk about all of the, the benefits and the blessings of singleness and how we can give our lives to Jesus, living chaste lives of how we're commanded to do that. But to boil it all down, the point is, is that a truly righteous person is not merely concerned with his actions, but they're concerned with their heart because that's where it all begins and he takes um, the condition of his or her heart so seriously that he'll do anything biblically necessary to prevent himself from going back to whatever causes him to sin this is what jesus is talking about plucking out your eyeballs cutting off your hands he's not saying to literally do those things but he is saying take your heart seriously do whatever is biblically necessary to, to burn the bridges to whatever that sin is, to prevent yourself from lusting after another person, to, to keep yourself honoring the image of God and whoever that person is. Secondly, true uh, righteousness produces fidelity and integrity in verses 31 through 37. Basically, to sum it all up, we keep our word. Uh, we Truth matters to disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't we don't shade it. We don't spin it. We don't manipulate it. We're true people. We, and we also, we, we keep our word in our relationships to well, one, our spouses and also to those around us, our, our, our neighbors. Uh, Jesus gives us two examples here, divorce and oath taking. Neither one, which was a command in the Old Testament, but rather uh, permissions that God gave his people to account for um, their sinfulness and their weakness. So there were permissions and they were, there were limited in scope for, for specific criteria. But here the Pharisees. They're expanding those permissions uh, to justify their, their sinful actions. So for divorce, what's the deal with the divorce? It's clear from the text that the Pharisees were only preoccupied with the grounds of divorce. That's the only thing they they cared about. It was completely self-centered. They were figuring out how they could finagle their way out of a marriage they no longer cared to be in. Gone are the old days of when God commands his people, we see this in Hosea, to pursue their, their spouses even when they're sinned against. But, but now th- these Pharisees are living and teaching such a way that this is this permission can really be expanded um, to, to satisfy your selfish concerns is what he is saying here. They're not concerned about the covenant of marriage. They're concerned, this is essentially how far is too far. That's their mentality. They're not not concerned with the covenant of marriage, the promises and the vows that they make with their spouses and to God. They're not concerned about the sacrificial, other-centered, action-oriented love that we're supposed to have for our spouses and which God has for his bride. Now, of course, Jesus says there are allowances still for divorce, but it's it's a very narrowed circumstance that the Pharisees and many folks out there today expand those things because it's a self-centered thing. But but Jesus is saying we 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 keep our word to the vows in which we made to our spouse and to the Lord. Secondly, oath taking. Now. Listen, th- this, again, is, is a permission. It's something that was done usually in the context of court. But, of course, they, they expanded it and they applied it to everyday situations. And they were saying to themselves that that if they swore and made an oath on the right things then they were able to get off promises they made, say a business deal or some sort of an arrangement or agreement. As long as they didn't swear on the wrong things, as long as they didn't swear on God's name or swear on God's temple, um, as long as they just swore on the secular things, then they could essentially break their promises. So essentially they are liars and because of a technicality, they're not considered liars anymore. (laughs) Jesus says, you've missed it. He says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. And he says, if, if you're if you're a true disciple, you aren't going to need to swear or make an oath in the first place. And if you do, if you do need to, it's because no one trusts you. And you prove yourself to be without integrity. But the point that Jesus is making is that is that the person who is who is a true disciple of Jesus, um, the, the righteousness starts in our hearts because we have new transformed hearts righteous hearts and this eventually produces and manifests itself in fidelity and and also integrity we we care about truth we keep our word is what Jesus is saying then thirdly in verses 43 through 48 it says true righteousness produces sacrificial love now these last verses in my mind anyway brings us to the highest point of the sermon on the mount which for which it's both admired and the most resented, namely because the attitude in which Jesus is calling us to is sacrificial love, not just for those close to us, but especially for even our enemies. I can't think of a more challenging aspect of the Sermon on the Mount than that, because it is so counter to everything that this world says is right. Friends, we live in a world that tells us, even as the church, to plant our flag in the ground and to be against those who are against us, to make an enemy of them. It tells us that all we we have to do is preserve our rights. That's what we must do. We must must guard ourselves and self-protect and all the rest. We live in a world that shows no grace to anybody, that cancels the transgressor. (laughs) And, And now more than ever, brothers, we need to be shaped by what Jesus says here, this new kingdom ethic. And, uh, this is uh, essentially what Jesus is saying, that this is a, a better way. This is the, 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 the way in which he has designed. This is the new way of living to lay down our lives for the sake of other people. Uh, to lay down our lives for, for even our enemies. And it's so essential that we do so Because not only are we showing the world that there's a better way of living, they're going to come ask us, like, how in the world are you doing this? Why are you doing this? They're going to see a a new, better way of living, a, a blessed life. And then secondly, we're going to be able to tell them why. We're going to prove ourselves to be children of God, because brothers, only those born of God, born of his spirit can love people this way. This is what that means. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. The kingdom righteousness that we're being called to right here is the kingdom righteousness of our king. And as those who have received such amazing and sacrificial love from God, when we are enemies, as those who have been transformed by that love, we are are now commanded to show that love to our enemies. And it's so hard to love people this way. It's so hard to to love people who slander us. It's so hard to, to love people who, by all worldly measures, are unlovable. It's so hard to love people who oppose us, who persecute us. It requires supernatural grace. And Jesus is saying that is the grace that we have received in him. And now we're commanded to love others, including our enemies, just as we have been loved. Uh, brothers, as, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are law keepers. We desire God's law. We cherish his law by the power of his Holy Spirit. We seek to practice it, but not to earn grace, not to earn favor, but to live in response to the grace and favor we have already received in Christ. Lastly, in verses uh, 1 through 18 in chapter 6, we see that that uh, true righteousness is changes our desires. Um, Jesus shows us this when he's talking about true religion. He, he gives us three categories giving, praying, and fasting and I wish we could talk in great detail about all of those things. but the major point that Jesus is making in this section is that our exceeding righteousness will be evident in new desires. Um, for example, in the, in the for the very reason that we practice religion, Now, Jesus is, to be clear, he is not saying that these things are not important or that we shouldn't do them. But rather, he is saying that true disciples do them in such a way that manifests God-glorifying desires. Reading these passages, it is clear that the religious folks back then, they did them, but all for the wrong reasons. Uh, their reward was was human applause. They were seeking to be uh, thought of in high esteem by each other and by those around them. They they wanted to be well thought of. Um, their their great desire was to be thought of as being special and righteous and 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 amazing by everybody else. Right now, the tragic irony that we see in, in verse three and and elsewhere in the in these verses is that they actually receive the reward. Um, that they want. But that's all that they're going to receive, which is so tragic. That's all they're going to receive unless they repent. Because friends, listen, we struggle with this all the time, don't we? We struggle with with uh, desiring our brothers and our sisters and all of those around us their their approval we desire that so much. And it, it, as a pastor, I, I wrestle all the time and, and pray all the time and repent all the time that my desire would not be in, in, in teaching a good lesson or preaching a good sermon to receive um, the attaboys from the congregation, but rather to glorify God and to teach a good lesson so that other people might know what God's word is saying. But I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But here's the deal, as believers with, with a new heart and power by the Holy Spirit, we repent of it. And we turn away from it. Uh, because what, the, the overarching desire of, of a believer, the overarching desire of a believer, are the things of God, not the things of man. Our desire are the things of the God, ultimately God himself. And what this passage is telling us is that as we give ourselves to the Lord and as we are theocentric in in all of our life, as we as we're following him for his glory, just to to, to, to simply be with him, we are going to get the reward that we were created for. Of course, you know, every spiritual blessing in Christ, but the but the main reward we're on the day to come, we're going to hear from our father himself say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we can live life now knowing that that approval is already ours in Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ, he he has ushered in something new. He is the new king. He's made for himself a new people. He has ushered in a new kingdom and he's given us a new way of living. Uh, Our true righteousness is is greater than that of the Pharisees because it's, it's a heart level righteousness from a new heart. Our Christian love is broader than the Pharisees because we're loving even our enemies. And our Christian desire is not the things of man, but it's completely theocentric. We're God-focused and we simply want his glory and we want to be with him. But brothers, as we study this with each other and as we think about it, whenever we walk away from it, do not think that these things are things that that you have to do in order to be loved and accepted by God that's not what this is you are already loved by god and you are accepted by god not because of anything that you have done but because of his son jesus christ our lord who lived the perfect life and died a bloody death because we couldn't and as those who put our faith in him who are united to him in faith who are secured by his blood, who are given a new heart and empowered by his Holy Spirit, we seek to live this new life because we know that it's pleasing to God the Father. We know that this is the true way of blessing and joy and freedom. We also, as a city on the hill, are lighting the path for others who are still enslaved by the false narratives and promises of this world, and we do it ultimately for his glory. And brothers, I am so thankful again that we have this opportunity to study God's word together, resting in the finished work of Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit, helping each other to live out this new life of blessing together. Love you, brothers. Hope to see you soon.